And if you would, uh, open in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 3. We're picking up our series in the book of Acts, where we left off before Advent. And uh, even though the Christmas trees are still up on the stage, many of you are putting your trees away. All of our trees and stuff is still in a box in our living room because we don't want to carry it up to our third floor. But Christmas is over, and so we're moving on, and we're back in the book of Acts. And with Christmas coming to an end, the new year begins. And with the new year, uh, it always brings in us a desire for a clean slate. There's a part of us every new year which, in which we wish to simply press a restart button on many of the decisions that we made the last year and start all over again. Uh, we long for the ability to take our current bad habits our unattractive physical characteristics, our negative tendencies, and our poor decisions, scrap those and start from scratch. And this is kind of the impetus behind why we in the West celebrate the new year in the way that we do. The new year provides us with a fresh path for blessing that the previous year did not offer to us. And to this end, we multiply gym memberships and resolutions and Bible reading plans, all of which are good things. But as we pick back up in the book of Acts this morning, the Spirit of God, through this text of the Scripture, speaks to this longing that we all have to live a blessed life. However, the way in which we attain this blessed life that we all crave and long for comes about in a way that is very different than we would suspect. So with that said, let's open our Bibles and read Acts chapter 3 together. We are going to read the whole chapter together, so I would just ask that you have a little bit of patience, focus with me, and let's drink in the riches of God's word here. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, 
To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I would invite you to pray with me now that God would use his word to bless us this morning. Father, as we come to you this morning to study your word, I pray that you would make us humble. Father, I pray that you would keep us low before you. Lord, I pray even that as I preach this morning that you would help me to recognize what Peter and John recognized. Lord, that what I speak this morning does not come from me, but that I pray that I might be able to proclaim the riches of Christ, that we all might feast on him and find our lives changed. It's in his precious name we pray these things. Amen. Well, as we restart our series in the book of Acts, uh, I think it'd be helpful just to briefly back up and recap what uh, Acts chapters 1 and 2 have told us so far. So at the beginning of chapter 1, we remember Jesus ascends into heaven. And he promises his 11 apostles, soon to be 12 at the end of chapter 1, authority and power from his spirit to testify about his death and resurrection to the entire known world. And then in chapter 2, at the Feast of Pentecost, the apostles and the early followers of Jesus receive that promised power. They receive the spirit of Jesus signifying that the time of this new covenant has dawned. This time when the Spirit would be active in a new and fresh way and people would be drawn to the Messiah, Jesus. And on this day of Pentecost, 2,000 people believe in Jesus and the rhythms of worship, Bible study, prayer, and fellowship begin for this early church. Well, now in chapter 3 we witness the first miraculous deed performed by Jesus' spokesman. And this story takes place at the ninth hour, which is somewhere that's about 3 p.m., and it was the time for afternoon prayer. And so Peter and John, being faithful Jewish men, go up to the temple to pray for afternoon prayer. And as they go up, 
they enter through this popular gate. Uh, it's called the beautiful gate. They don't know exactly which gate that was in the temple, but we do know that it was a very highly trafficked gate into the temple. And as they enter, they notice a man who has been born lame. The, the text literally reads in the Greek that he was lame from the womb. This man, from his very first breath, was dependent. He never knew anything other than dependence upon other people. He had to be picked up and placed at his spot by the gate daily by these faithful friends of his. He could not even make it to his own quote-unquote job in order to make his living. He was entirely helpless, an outcast in society, and completely dependent upon the generosity of others for his well-being. And as Peter and John walk by this man, he asks them for money. And notice they don't respond with instantly writing this man off. They don't respond with disdain or scorn. They don't respond by trying to scurry on past him and not make eye contact. Rather, verse 4 tells us that they direct their gaze towards the man. They see this man for who he is, a desperate beggar. And this leads them to offer the man something more valuable than money, new life in Christ. And they call upon the name of the Lord and they heal the man of this lifelong disability. Jesus breaks in through the apostles and gives this man an entirely new life. His life is reborn this day. And look at how this man responds. Let's read verse eight again together. It says, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Not only does this man start to sing the praises of God, not only are his thoughts directed towards God, but it's as if his whole body engages in a worship service to God for what he has done for him. And this man who could not walk is now running around, jumping around, praising God for what he has done for him. And while that is miraculous in and of itself, that this man who could not walk is now doing laps around the temple, jumping up and down, there's something that's even more miraculous that Luke wants us to see here in this text. This former lame man is embodying the promised new age of the Messiah. See, in the prophets, it was promised that there would be a day when the Messiah came where all things were recreated. So let's look at one of these promises. This is Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. And this is what I think is in the backdrop of this miracle here. In the age of God's salvation shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This crippled man, or formerly crippled man, bounding around like a young doe is a sign to those watching that the age of God's salvation has dawned on them. And not only that, but it's also a sign that the ministry and power of the Messiah are continuing with those who he has given power and who will establish his church. So this miracle is like a massive light-up billboard signifying that the age of the Messiah did not stop when Jesus ascended into heaven. 
the age of the Messiah continues with his appointed, empowered spokesman and through the work of his church. And the crowd who saw this glowing billboard of a sign responded rightly with amazement. They could not believe this. This is the guy that they would walk past daily as they entered into the temple. The guy they knew could not walk. This would be like if somebody from your small town high school, you come to find out, became a famous rock star. Only if that person was mute from birth, could not sing at all, could not even speak. This person you walk by in the hallway every day, you say hi to them, they can't say anything to you. All of a sudden you turn on the TV and they are in the most famous rock band in the world. It'd be a little shocking to say the least. And these people are beside themselves at this man who was once lame, now running and leaping around the temple praising God. And through the healing of this poor lame man, the apostles are doing it all to point to Jesus. And now we have to recognize here and stop and say, our lives don't usually look like this, right? Our, our church experience usually doesn't look like this. However, even though we as the church don't perform miracles in this same uniquely empowered way that the apostles did, our heart for those whom the world brushes aside ought to be the same. See, the actions of the church on behalf of those whom the world kicks to the curb ought to look miraculous and unexplainable only by the power of the Spirit. You see, if, if we only had Acts chapter 2, we might be tempted to think Christianity is all about the big things, the glamorous things, the, the 2,000 people in one day kind of things. But Acts chapter 3 gives us another picture. The apostles, just like their Savior, go to this one man, this broken man, and they see him for who he is, and they love him, and they care for him. So that leads me to ask, community, is our surrounding community amazed by the way we point to Jesus with our actions of love and care for those whom the world pays no mind? Are people floored by the way that we tangibly care for the widow, the poor, the elderly, and the refugee? I mean, think about this. Within the walls of our church, God has graced us with a group of people whom the world does not give a rip about other than to make political talking points of on one side or the other. God has graced us as a church with this opportunity. So as people who are outsiders to our church glimpse our church in action, do they see Jesus by the way that we treat those who are the most broken, even within our own community, those whom the world kicks to the curb. I pray that as people see our church, they would not know what to think about us. They wouldn't know what category to put us in by the way that we love those who are poor and marginalized by our world today. Because that is one of the main ways that the church of Jesus Christ points to the reality of Jesus Christ and the kingship of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ by the way that we treat those 
when the world kicks to the curb. I pray that the world would marvel at the way this small church loves those in need. Well, after the apostles perform this sign of Jesus' salvation, they go on to proclaim his salvation in word in verses 11 through 26. Now, notice this. We're going to see this throughout the book of Acts as we go through, but I'm just going to give mention to it. Notice sign is followed by word. This implicit gospel action, this healing miracle, is tethered to an explicit gospel proclamation. Deed and word are working together in the ministry of the apostles, as I think it should be in our church today. But this proclamation of the gospel in verses 11 through 26 contains dense, rich theology that we, we would not do well to only try to scrape the surface of in one sermon. Uh, and so what I want to do is just, I just want to try to summarize it in one sentence and then zero in on one aspect of this sermon, which I believe to be the main point that Peter is making here. So here's the summary that I'll give of this sermon, 11 through 26. This is what I think the gist of it is. After Jesus's death for sins, God exalted him by raising him from the dead and by enthroning him as king of the world, where he seeks to bless everyone who would turn to him in faith. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty great to me. Right? Who, who wouldn't want blessing from the king of the universe? That sounds like a good gig to me. Uh, who wouldn't want a time of refreshing, as verse 20 calls it? And yet, we all have to acknowledge the fact that we actively deny the blessing that God offers to us. And I think Peter's words to the crowd in verse 12 Addressing their response to this miracle gives us a, a window into why that's the case, why we actively deny this free blessing that God offers us. If you would look with me at verse 12, it'll be on the screen there. He says, Men of Israel, why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? See, the people believe that. Peter and John are like some sort of magic portal or totem that they can use to be blessed. They think that these healing miracles are ways that they can be blessed by the power of Peter and John. Similar to the way that the crowd that crucified Jesus believed that he was the one who would meet their needs of freeing them from Roman oppression by military might. And then when that wasn't the case, they crucified him. And we do the same thing. We pay God lip service, as I'm sure these religious people who were going up to the temple did regularly. All the while, our lives are all about finding a career or finding a spouse, or making sure we have the perfect family, or about proving the haters wrong with our hard work at our jobs. We pray and seek God for things, but we become disillusioned when he doesn't give us what we want. And see, that's because we all, just like these people in the crowd, use God and his gifts to seek blessing on our own terms. We use God like a genie to make all of our New Year's resolutions come true. 
We want God for the stuff that he gives. And even those of you who may be here today and would say, you know, you talk about like me using God, I don't even believe there is a God, or I don't even know what to think about Christianity as a whole. I would say that you, even though you don't believe in God, still are religiously seeking with your life blessing on your own terms, apart from God. And this is what human beings have done ever since the Garden of Eden. Think about this with me for a second. In the Garden, God gives to Adam and Eve a bounty. He gives them this entire beautiful garden and says, eat whatever you want. Go name the animals. Have a blast. And yet, prompted by the serpent, they eventually start to think, you know, God's holding out on me. God doesn't really have my best interest in mind. God doesn't really have a heart to bless me. And ever since then, our lives have been marked by a disposition to move away from the face of God and the blessing that is contained for us there. And do you see what an affront to God this is to do this? Right? So think about it in this, this terms. Think about a, a single parent who has a child. And this single parent works two jobs in order to put their child through college. They go to every sporting event. They pour out their life for their child. And yet the child turns back around and said, Mom or Dad, you don't love me. You don't do anything. You don't have my best interests in mind. And you don't care about me. This is what we do every time we go to God and we seek, or we don't go to God, every time we run from God and we seek blessing on our own terms and not on his terms. We jam a finger into the chest of the one who poured himself out in order to bless us. But God, in his goodness, pursues his prodigal people anyway in order to bless them. And this is the good news of this passage. Look with me, if you will, at the final verse, verse 26. It says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So God sent the message of the gospel, this message of blessing in Jesus Christ, first to the same people who crucified Jesus. That's the heart of God. God says, you crucified my son, and yet I send my son and through, these, through my appointed spokesman to you first in order that you might, be embraced, em, em, yeah, you might be blessed by embracing the gospel. That is what God does. That is his character. And he does the same to us. Those who constantly reject him, who seek blessing apart from his face. He runs after us and he says, I still want to bless you. And I have proven that to you by sending my son to die for you. God chases down those who reject him in order to bless them. For the rest of our time together this morning, I want to camp out in three verses and look at this blessing uh, that God gives us in the gospel in a little bit more detail. So we're going to look first at, at the pathway to this blessing, the way we get this blessing, 
and then the nature of the blessing itself. The pathway to the blessing and the nature of the blessing itself. Uh, And I think those are clearly shown to us in verses 19 through 21. So let's read those, and then we'll look at this briefly. So verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now let's camp out on verse 19, because I think the the logic of this verse helps us to see the the pathway to this blessing and how it works. So I'm going to paraphrase for us verse 19 so that I, I think we can see this a little bit more clearly. So verse 19, my paraphrase says, Because of Jesus' sacrificial death and glorious exaltation from the grave to the right hand of God, repent and turn around so that your sins may be blotted out. You see, we must repent in order that these blessings to come may follow after us. Repentance is the pathway to blessing. And this is because Ever since that garden, all of us, since Adam and Eve, have been on a death march that only leads to cursing, not blessing. Since the Garden of Eden, we have turned our backs on God and have walked away from his presence, the very place of blessing. Our lives have been like a spaceship venturing further and further out into the solar system, away from the warmth and life of the sun. Repentance is that reorientation of our life from death back towards the life-giving presence of God. It is us turning around from death to life, away from God toward God. And the therefore at the beginning of verse 19 is absolutely essential, that word therefore. So if you notice in the way I paraphrased it, rather than saying therefore, I said, because of Jesus' sacrificial death, and glorious exaltation from the grave, repent. And that's because that is all in the background of our repentance. You see, repentance is not like a New Year's resolution where we feel bad about something, right? So, you know, usually how this goes is we eat way too many cookies at Christmas time and we feel terrible. And then this is kind of, I'm just, this, you're getting a window into myself here. And uh, so you feel terrible, and then you're hanging out with your father-in-law who likes to punish himself and was in the military for 30 years over, uh, over Christmas, and we're like, okay, we're going to run this really big race this year. And then we're like, all right, and then we do it the next year. Um, and uh, this was the past year where we actually fulfilled that. But usually those fall flat. And that's not what repentance is like, because repentance is not feeling really bad and trying really hard to make our lives better. That's not what it's about. If that's the case, we're doomed. Repentance is about recognizing that there is nothing that you and I can do on our own. No resources that we can bring to the table to transform our lives from a life of cursing to a life of blessing. Left on our own, our lives are a march towards death in every sense of the word. Only God in Christ's sacrificial death and glorious resurrection can provide these resources to us in order to change. 
in order to turn around. That therefore points us to the source of all of our blessing, the cross and empty grave of Jesus Christ. So that's the pathway to blessing, is repentance. Now let's turn and look at the nature of this blessing itself. So I've hinted at this a lot in the sermon, but if you look at verse 20, foundationally, all blessing comes from the presence of the Lord. Right? So it's not the stuff that God gives us, it's God himself that is our blessing. In the same way, I hope that you would say that it is your spouse, him or herself, not the things they give you, that is the blessing of that relationship. So God is our ultimate blessing. Second, this blessing in the presence of God consists of blotting out of our sin and refreshing from God. So this idea of blotting out of sin that it speaks of is is the way that they used to wipe off ink from a piece of paper back in their day. Ink wouldn't stick in the same way that it would, and so you could wipe it off a lot easier. So to paraphrase to our context, it would be like highlighting an entire Microsoft Word document, which our sins would be pages and pages and pages long, and pressing delete. That is what repentance gives us. That's what the cross of Christ purchases for us. It's that delete key. And when that happens, we, bring, we have refreshing from God. You see, I don't think it's any, uh, any novel idea that sin does not bring refreshing. Sin brings destruction. Sin wreaks havoc in our life. Sin brings rot to our bones. But repentance and turning towards the presence of God brings refreshing in life. I think the best passage in the whole Bible that captures this is Psalm 32, a famous psalm of David. Let's read just a few verses from the beginning of this psalm and notice the way that David describes repentance. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For those of you this morning that might be suffering under the oppressive hand of sin, know that there is a way out. There is a way out by God's grace. There is an oasis for your dry and parched life in Christ Jesus, and it is available to you today if you only recognize your deep thirst and drink deeply from Christ. There is refreshment for you today. There is freedom from sin for you today in the presence of God. Finally, we discover in this passage that blessing occurs in two phases, present and future. So in verses 19 through 21, we see that there is a present momentary forgiveness that lasts through this life. We receive it the moment we place faith in Christ. That's what we've been talking about. We experience forgiveness and refreshment. But ultimate blessing will come when Christ comes again and the promised restoration of all things occurs. See, you will experience blessing and satisfaction in this life in Christ, but it will be nothing 
worth comparing, like Scott read from Romans 8, which we studied this Christmas, to the glory that will be ours when Christ comes again and redeems all things. So it will always feel partial. It will always feel incomplete. You may get a taste of the refreshment of that water, but you will go right back to sin. It'll be a constant struggle, but there will be a day when you will be finally and fully refreshed. When Jesus comes, you see him face to face and you are in his presence forever. In uh, last year's film, Ad Astra, which is kind of a, a nerdy uh, space movie, for if that's your uh, niche genre as it happens to be mine, um, this astronaut main character named Roy McBride, uh, who's played by Brad Pitt, searches across the solar system for his father in order to discover answers that could save planet Earth from imminent destruction. Sounds like every other space movie so far. Um, but it's really different. Uh, Pitt's father, who is also an astronaut, you find, journeyed out to the edge of the solar system looking for intelligent life. And in this final scene of the movie, which is really this father and son story told throughout the expanse of a solar system, Brad Pitt consoles his father. You see, his father is distraught by the reality that there is no intelligent life out there, that we are all that there is in his words. And in a consoling moment, Brad Pitt tells his father, Dad, we're all we've got. And the conclusion that we're to draw from these words and that his father was to draw from these words is that we don't need to continue looking for resources outside of ourselves as human beings in order to continue on because we are all that there is. We are all that we need. And I thank God that that is not true. My only hope in life and in death, as that old catechism says, is precisely that I am not all that I need, that I need life himself from outside of myself to break in and bring refreshing and revival to my rotting bones, my bones cursed by sin and death. Church, the pathway to blessing in this new year and in your life is not about Whole30, new parenting strategies, new evangelism programs, changing your character, even running a thousand miles. The pathway to blessing is repentance and faith. It's a return to the face of God. No healthy eating program, no change in habit, no restored family structure, nothing will give you what the face of God shining upon you will give you. The creator of the universe himself looking upon you in blessing. And this year, the way that we do that is not by trying harder. It's not by trying to find resources in ourselves. It's by acknowledging that we need a savior and by staying low before God in humility and repentance before the Lord. And so Scott made one New Year's resolution for us this morning. I'm just going to add one more to that, and I think we'll be in good shape for 2020, church. We're a church of prayer and a church that stays humble and repentant before the Lord and before one another. God will be pleased to work among us this new year because that is the way to life, recognizing that we don't have it in ourselves. I want to conclude this sermon uh, in kind of an unorthodox way. Uh, I want to speak over you, over myself, over us, the priestly blessing that's found in Numbers chapter 6. 
which promises the blessing of God's presence to everyone who recognizes their need for him. So this is going to be a little strange, but let's all stand. I'm going to read number six over us, and then we'll pray. Then you can stay standing as the band's going to come up and lead us in a closing song. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I pray this year that our church would know the life-giving, life-transforming presence of God and the blessing that that is. Let's pray. Father, we trust that you are all we need. Not that we are all that we need. Not that we have resources in ourselves to fix ourselves, but Lord, that you are what we need. So Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us the power this year not to rely on ourselves, not to prop ourselves up, but to stay humble before you, to repent, to be quick to acknowledge that our life and our sin only leads to death and to turn back towards you, the presence of God, where life and joy are to be found. So Lord, may that be the case for community in 2020. For your glory, we pray. Amen.